The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the Son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Tired of ads? Join our Patreon. You get every episode ad-free, including an exclusive Patreon-only bonus episode. To join, click the link in our bio or go to patreon.com slash themurderdiariespod. See you there. Welcome back to another episode of The Murder Diaries. I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. 22-year-old Jennifer Servo had just moved to Abilene, Texas from Northwest Montana after finally landing a job that she had dreamed of since she was little. Less than three months after her big move, on September 18, 2002, Jennifer was found murdered in her apartment with very little evidence as to who took the life of this smart, headstrong, and creative young journalist. Though one suspect has lived in the minds of Jennifer's family, friends, and detectives since the day her body was found, it's been over 20 years and her murder is still unsolved. This is her story. You still think it's in my head But I'm walking with the dead Jennifer Lynn Olson, also known professionally as Jennifer Servo, was born on September 23, 1979 in Columbia Falls, Montana, to her father, Norman, and her mother, Sherry, with who she shared that name Servo with professionally. The couple named their blonde-haired, blue-eyed daughter after a Scottish love song titled Jennifer Juniper. Jennifer had an older half-sister named Krista, who Jennifer always looked up to. Krista, who didn't realize it when they were children, was her younger sister's role model. Krista told the Flathead Beacon, I didn't realize until later that she viewed me differently than I viewed myself. Whether we knew it or not, we were always leaning on each other. Jennifer grew up in a quiet neighborhood in Northwest Montana, but she added a big splash of personality to the area. Her family recalled that she could often be found climbing trees, singing, running around in a pink leotard, or dressing up in a clown costume and riding her bike around. Jennifer's dad, Norman, said that she was unique among her friends. He explained to the Montana Press that when it snowed and other neighborhood children were building snowmen, Jennifer would create snow mice or something equally creative. Whether she was singing a silly song or building an animal out of snow, Jennifer was a creative girl. On Jennifer's memorial Facebook page, Norman posted photos of drawings and tissue paper crafts that she made. Describing her brightly colored crayon drawings, Norman said, I was busting buttons of pride with my daughter. She was a little Dr. Seuss at the age of six. Jennifer was even known to write and illustrate her own books. Jennifer was drawn to water as a young girl, spending warm days in a swimming pool or nearby Flathead Lake. Once she was old enough, she spent summers working at Big Sky Water Slides in Columbia Falls, Montana. The Olson Servo family loved traveling and were able to take several family vacations. One of Jennifer's favorites was a trip that included a visit to the Las Vegas Natural History Museum. She was absolutely entranced by the enormous T-Rex replica. Even at a young age, it was clear that Jennifer wasn't like other kids. Norman described her as a magical little girl with great work ethic and equally great aspirations. 
Jennifer attended Columbia Falls High School and was the definition of well-rounded. Not only did she continue to develop her creativity and athleticism, she became a born leader and excelled academically. One of her teachers even nominated her for the U.S. Achievement Academy's National Award for History and Government. She tried out several instruments before finally settling on playing the baritone saxophone for the school band. Despite being a great musician, Jennifer eventually said goodbye to playing in the band and joined the school's cheerleading squad. Her father said Jennifer had been a wonderful musician in band, but she was convinced by her half-sister that, quote, band is dumb, so she started cheerleading instead. When she wasn't cheering, she was running for the cross-country team or at swim team practice. Though much of Jennifer's time was taken up with school and her extracurricular activities, she still made time to relax and have fun. She especially loved playing Super Mario Brothers and watching The Simpsons TV show. In addition to working at the water park, she also worked at Gary and Leo's grocery store. High school is also where Jennifer really realized her passion for writing. It became her goal in life to be a broadcast journalist. Her father told The Sun Online she made it clear that she wanted to be a journalist in high school. She saw the episode of The Simpsons where Lisa was an anchor on the school news show. Jennifer's ambition was unmatched, and no one had any doubt that they'd see her on their televisions one day. Both Sherry and Norman were stunned when Jennifer came to them during her junior year of high school and told them that she wanted to join the Army Reserves. At just 17, she needed parental permission. Jennifer explained that joining the Army would help her pay for college and she'd have opportunities to travel the world that she wouldn't normally get. Then one day, Jennifer calls Sherry during Christmas break from the Army Recruiting Center. When Sherry answered, Jennifer said, you need to come down here and sign the papers so I can join. Sherry wasn't thrilled about the idea, but ultimately she signed the consent papers allowing Jennifer to join the Army Reserves. Sherry told local media that Jennifer was ambitious and driven, saying that you never knew what she was going to do or say, but if she made up her mind, by God, she was going to do it. In the summer of 1997, before her senior year of high school, Jennifer attended basic training for the Army. She graduated from Columbia Falls High School in 1998 and enrolled at the University of Montana. At just 18 years old, Jennifer had a full course load, monthly duties and training for Army Reserves, and was cleaning hotel rooms to earn money. Much like she did in high school, Jennifer excelled in the military. The Montana Press reported that she was a specialist in the 347th Quartermaster Unit for almost six years, and that she was a squad leader for her barracks during the infantry training. At UM, Jennifer enrolled in several communications classes, still hellbent on becoming a journalist and working for a news station. Her professors admired her work ethic and ability to stay focused. Professor Denise Dowling said that she was blown away by all the outside projects she had going on when some of the other students could barely keep their heads above water with the regular courses. By the time Jennifer entered her senior year at University of Montana, she was a huge part of their radio, television, professional journalism program. She even won several awards. She was working at both Missoula's TV news station and doing the evening edition for Montana Public Radio. Professor Dowling saw Jennifer's raw talent and passion for broadcast journalism and said it was even more obvious that she was made for the job when you saw her on TV. Dowling told the Flathead Beacon she was just one of those people who really sparked on camera. That's not something we can teach. You either have it or you don't. She had it. During her time in the Army Reserves, Jennifer was able to travel to El Salvador to spend two weeks with a joint task force team. 
The team was responsible for purifying water for the people who lived there. She kept journals documenting her experience. Her mother shared this particular journal with Flathead Beacon News, who described the journal, which had a photo on the cover of Jennifer on the hood of her Hummer parked in front of the ocean. The journal also had a title, The Jen Chronicles. They quoted a specific piece from the journal, which spoke to Jennifer's determination and fearless attitude. Even in a foreign country, she wrote, I guess there are a bunch of terrorists camped out next to forward camp. We had about 10 Salvadorian guards with us at our site. I wasn't worried. I was like, terrorist, schmerrorist, I'm going to the beach. So I did. Unfortunately, Jennifer's parents' marriage ultimately ended in divorce. Christmas in 2000 was the last time that Norman saw his daughter. He told the son online that they never spoke again after that holiday. It's something I've struggled with ever since, he said. Jennifer began using her mother's maiden name, Servo. Jennifer graduated from University of Montana on May 18, 2002 with a Bachelor's of Art in Journalism and a minor in Communication Studies. She had her eyes on getting a full-time job as a reporter. It didn't take long before she was offered a job at a media station in Abilene, Texas, far from her hometown in Montana. In late June, she accepted a position with KRBC-TV as a field reporter. Her starting salary was just $7.50 an hour, which today would be just over $12 an hour, but Jennifer couldn't have been more excited. Over the July 4th holiday weekend, Jennifer introduced her family to her new boyfriend, a 34-year-old former Army Ranger named Ralph. The two had met during training, and though Jennifer had just gotten out of a serious relationship, her friends didn't necessarily think that he was the best fit for her. One friend described Ralph to the Montana Press as a bad-looking man with tattoos all over his arms. Many of Jennifer's loved ones hoped that her relationship with Ralph was just a rebound. In July of 2002, Jennifer made the move to Texas. However, much to the dismay of her mom and some of her friends, Jennifer didn't move alone. Ralph followed Jennifer down to Abilene a few days later with the rest of his belongings and her cat, Mr. Binks. Sherry helped her daughter move into her new apartment at Hunter's Ridge before flying back to Montana two days later. It seemed as though Jennifer was finally living her dream, working full-time as a news journalist. Her mother later told the Associated Press that her daughter was happy, that she said, quote, life is good. I have my own apartment with a swimming pool, a new job reporting, my cat, and cable TV. Unfortunately, the relationship between Jennifer and Ralph hit a roadblock soon after their move to Texas. And now a word from today's sponsor. I am so excited to say that this episode is brought to you in part by Factor. I've been using Factor for quite a while now, even before they sponsored this episode. And I cannot tell you how delicious this food is. And now that we're in the thick of summer, you might be looking for some nutrient-dense, convenient meals to support sunny, active days too. If it's too hot to turn the stove on, just pop your Factor in the microwave. Two minutes, you're good to go. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. Factor delivers their delicious, nutrient-dense meals right to your door. So save some time, cut some heat, and eat well. Not only does Factor offer meals, but you can also replenish your snack supply with an assortment of 45 plus add-ons. That's including breakfast items like delicious apple cinnamon pancakes, bacon and cheddar egg bites, and potato bacon and egg breakfast skillet. They also offer cold pressed juices, shakes, and smoothies. And totally easy, especially for someone like me who's still not walking around on two feet. (laughs) 
And one of the things I love about Factor is you can be sure you're making a sustainable choice. They offset 100% of their delivery emissions, source 100% renewable electricity for their production sites and offices, and feature sustainably sourced seafood in their meals. Head to factormeals.com slash diaries50 and use code diaries50 to get 50% off. That's code diaries50 at factormeals.com slash diaries50 to get 50% off. You guys do not want to pass this up. Jennifer found out that Ralph had left behind another woman in Montana. The woman was his fiance, and he had suddenly broke things off with her just days after meeting Jennifer. She also learned that Ralph had fathered a child with another woman, but that he never saw that child. Jennifer's sister, Krista, later told ABC News that Jennifer was heartbroken. Quote, that was really upsetting her. That was pretty much a deal breaker for her. Jennifer told Ralph that the relationship was over, forcing him out of the apartment. Jennifer's best friend, Dara, said that Ralph was upset, but didn't lose his temper. Dara said that Jennifer told her that Ralph came back into the apartment about a week after the breakup to try and patch things up with her, but she stood her ground. Ralph reportedly said he understood. He moved into another apartment just four minutes away, and Jennifer began to move on. Now, Jennifer was able to focus on her job. Her coworkers at the news station said that after her breakup with Ralph, Jennifer turned into a different person. One coworker, Brian, said a whole new world was being opened up for her and a weight was lifted off her shoulders. She was just so exuberant about him being out of there. Jennifer was thriving at the news station and had quickly become a well-loved part of the KRBC family. Reports said that her coworker Brian had developed a crush on Jennifer. ABC News described Brian as a 23-year-old weather forecaster with all-American clean-cut looks. He seemed very different from her now ex-boyfriend Ralph. Jennifer's friend Dara said that Jennifer knew Brian was interested in her, but didn't want him to get hurt. There are conflicting reports that said the two were dating, but regardless of whether Brian and Jennifer were ever an item of any sort, they were certainly good friends. On Sunday, September 15th, 2002, Jennifer and Brian finished up their news segment and left the studio to pick up a coffee table from a friend's apartment. Afterwards, the two stopped by Walmart for a late-night shopping trip. When Jennifer was driving Brian back to the apartment, he remembered her pointing out a car and said that she was concerned that she was being followed. Brian told her that she was probably just imagining it. He did offer to walk her back to her car that night, but Jennifer said she'd be fine. Jennifer then drove back to her apartment at Hunter's Ridge around midnight. Phone records show that when she got home, Jennifer spoke with another ex-boyfriend, Dave, who still lived in Montana. Dave later told ABC News that they talked about seeing each other later that year in Dallas. He said that Jennifer didn't mention anything about a stalker or anyone following her. The two talked for about an hour before saying goodnight. On Monday, September 16th, Jennifer had the day off from work. Friends and family couldn't get in touch with her, but no one thought much of it. The next day, the 17th, she also had the day off from work. Her normal schedule was four 10-hour shifts from Thursday through Sunday. Though she wasn't expected at the station, Jennifer had missed two outings with friends from work. On the morning of Wednesday, September 18th, Brian and another KRBC coworker drove to Jennifer's apartment, concerned that she hadn't returned any phone calls and no one had seen her. Her car was parked in the lot, but no one answered her door when they knocked. The two told the news director at the station what was going on, and he was immediately concerned. He called her apartment complex and asked them to check on her. 
a coworker also named Jennifer, recalled that she was at the station when police arrived at Jennifer's apartment. She later said, So I'm standing there talking to an executive producer and the police scanners are right behind her. And all of a sudden, I hear her address with the DOA dead on arrival. At 1.30 p.m. on September 18th, the apartment manager found 22-year-old Jennifer Servo dead in her apartment. It was obvious that she had been the victim of a brutal attack. Back in Montana, her mom, Sherry, had been worried that she hadn't been able to get in touch with her daughter the past few days. When a sheriff's deputy knocked on her door that day, Sherry knew something terrible had happened. With this horrific news of Jennifer's murder, her world was shattered. Sherry called Norman and told them that their daughter had been murdered. Norman later said, the world changed forever on that day. I took away all the happiness and dreams I ever had. Jennifer had only lived in Abilene for 61 days. She was less than a week out from her 23rd birthday and she'd been murdered in her own home. Everyone who knew her was absolutely stunned and heartbroken that Jennifer had been taken away from them. Abilene police detectives David Atkins and Jeff Bell were the first on the scene to begin the investigation. The crime scene in Jennifer's apartment told a story, and detectives were trying to figure out exactly what that story was. Jennifer's body was found in the bathroom. There was blood streaked across the carpet, which seemed to indicate that she'd been dragged to that area. There was also a large bloody area by Jennifer's bed, which happened to be located in the living room. And you might be wondering, why would her bed be in the living room? Well, Jennifer slept in her living room and used her bedroom as a big walk-in closet. This meant that the killer would have had to drag Jennifer from the living room, through the bedroom, past the closet, and into the bathroom. It seemed as though Jennifer had been murdered sometime during the early morning hours of September 16th, not long after she would have gotten off the phone with her ex-boyfriend. Her body was in the early stages of decomposition when discovered, with lividity fixed to the front of her body, indicating that she had likely been laying face down since the killer left. She was fully clothed in shorts, underwear, and a t-shirt, along with multiple rings on her fingers. Her watch was discarded on the floor. There were many things in the apartment that were noted to be a bit off, with several things missing. When her coworker stopped by her apartment to check on her before alerting police, they noticed that her window shades were completely down. Jennifer typically pulled her shades up a bit so that her cat, Mr. Binks, could look outside. There's speculation that Jennifer's murderer may have dragged her body into the bathroom so that it wouldn't be visible from the outside if someone was able to see past those window shades. Missing from her apartment were Jennifer's purse, car keys, wallet, cell phone, and some of her DVDs. These DVDs included three seasons of Sex and the City and Saving Private Ryan. Mr. Binks was safe inside, though he had contaminated the scene quite a bit. The forensics team had much difficulty later when examining the evidence while trying to separate Mr. Binks's hair from other hair found on the scene. The front door had been locked when the apartment manager arrived and no evidence of break-in was found. It seemed as though Jennifer may have been attacked by somebody she felt comfortable letting inside. Jennifer's autopsy confirmed that her cause of death was due to a combination of blunt force trauma to the head and strangulation. The manner of death was, of course, ruled homicide. She had several injuries to the front of her head and face, including fractures, which caused heavy bleeding. There were no injuries to the back of her head. There was bruising found, though, that was consistent with sexual assault. However, some reports say that it hadn't been confirmed whether Jennifer was sexually assaulted or not. If she was sexually assaulted, the attacker would have redressed her afterwards. 
there was petechiae present on Jennifer's throat and in her eyes. Petechiae happens when tiny capillaries burst and blood leaks into the area. This is a very common finding in those who have been strangled while conscious. Other than the few personal items that were missing from the apartment, it didn't appear that anything of large monetary value had been taken, which made robbery seem like a less likely motive for the murder. Crime scene technicians scoured the apartment, collecting blood, fingerprints, and anything else that might help them figure out who was responsible for Jennifer's murder. It didn't take Detective Bell long to form an opinion about the murder. He told CBS News, I personally do feel that she knew who did this to her. I think she had issues with someone, and that person obviously had issues with her. Jennifer's half-sister Krista and mother Sherry also believed that Jennifer knew her murderer. However, they were more specific about who they thought it was. Krista said, the first thing, the first person that I thought of was Ralph. Sherry agreed, saying that, she knew it had to be him. When questioned by detectives, Ralph said that he'd been at his apartment just a mile and a half away when Jennifer was murdered. But there was no way to corroborate that. Her friend Dara said that she didn't believe that Jennifer and Ralph were still in contact. She said that she had last spoke to her friend the day before she was murdered and that Jennifer told her she hadn't spoken or seen Ralph in three weeks. Detectives were also told that Jennifer had disclosed to some of her friends that Ralph liked it a little rougher in the bedroom, and that he often liked to choke her when they were intimate. This was not something Jennifer was used to, nor did she have any interest in, but she was crazy about Ralph. Dara said that Jennifer told her about this, but went on to logically state that strangling someone to death and liking it rougher in the bedroom are two completely different things. She ended by saying that Jennifer never mentioned that she felt threatened by it or scared. However, it is difficult to ignore this, knowing that Jennifer had been strangled in her last moments of life. CBS News reported that Ralph cooperated with detectives at the beginning of the investigation. He consented to interviews, searches, and volunteered samples of his DNA. However, it was long before Ralph began refusing to talk to investigators. He also just flat out declined to take a polygraph test. On September 26th, Jennifer Servo was laid to rest in Kalispell, Montana, in a ceremony with full military honors. The Reverend spoke candidly about Jennifer's death, saying, Jennifer was murdered. That weighs heavy on us. A person filled with sickness or evil took her life. When someone this young dies a violent death, it's just unspeakable. There were over 300 people in attendance to Jennifer's funeral. However, Sherry found it extremely odd that Ralph didn't come. She never received a phone call, card, or visit from Ralph to express his condolences after Jennifer was murdered. This was really what sealed the deal for Sherry in thinking that Ralph was behind her daughter's murder. Detectives noticed that when they first told Ralph that Jennifer was dead, he was very calm and didn't even ask what had happened. This was a stark contrast to the reaction detectives had received when they told another of Jennifer's close male friends, Brian. Remember, Brian was the last person to see Jennifer alive, other than her murderer. He was devastated to hear the news. While there's no normal way of acting after hearing such horrific news about someone you care about, Ralph's lack of emotion still rubbed detectives the wrong way. Brian's reaction was much more of what they would have expected. 
However, again, being that Brian was with Jennifer shortly before she was murdered, detectives needed to dive deeper in the possibility that he was the one who murdered her. Brian quickly obtained a lawyer, but remained open with investigators and told them exactly what happened the night he and Jennifer left the news station. When it was time for Jennifer to head home, she told Brian that she'd be fine getting to her car. Brian has continued to deny any involvement in Jennifer's murder. Mutual friends and coworkers of Brian and Jennifer said that there was no way Brian would have hurt her. The other Jennifer at the news station describes Brian as our sweet, adorable, couldn't hurt a fly, Brian. DNA from both Brian and Ralph was found inside Jennifer's apartment, but this was expected as both men had been inside her apartment multiple times. Forensic psychologist Michael Wellner told ABC News that though the two men acted differently, it's incredibly difficult to determine anything from this. Quote, how many of us know what it's like to be a murder suspect? Very few. Do they get a lawyer? Sometimes. Do they run? Do they clam up? Sometimes. Though detectives were focusing heavily on Ralph and Brian, they hadn't ruled out the possibility of a stalker. Coworker Jennifer said that Jennifer had recently shown her an article about newscasters who had been the victims of stalkers. This was especially strange given that Brian had told detectives that Jennifer was concerned about someone following her on the night that she was murdered. Friend Dara says that when she heard about Brian's account of that night and how Jennifer has supposedly been scared of a vehicle following her, she found it odd that Jennifer would have turned down Brian walking her to her car, nonetheless returning to an empty apartment. Brian explained this, saying that her car was parked at the bottom of the stairs that led up to his apartment and that he could see her car from where he stood as she left. The lack of physical evidence left investigators at a standstill. Detective Bell told CBS News that the lack of physical evidence didn't necessarily mean that they didn't have their own opinions of what happened, saying, you obviously have circumstantial evidence that would lead you to believe that it was somebody who she knew. Though it hadn't been proved, Sherry had no doubt in her mind that Ralph killed Jennifer. The motive was obvious to her. Sherry said, I think he was just a jealous, bitter person. If he couldn't have her, nobody could. In 2005, Brian moved to Tennessee. Ralph reportedly re-enlisted in the Army and has moved around the country since. Over a year after Jennifer's death, Sherry thought that she might have found a break in the case. She told the Montana Press that one of the items inside of her daughter's missing person wallet was her library card. On November 6, 2003, four books were checked out on Jennifer's account from the Mansfield Library at the University of Montana. Unfortunately, the library's access services coordinator said that this could have been a mistake. The wrong account could have been pulled up and the books could have been incorrectly checked out. There has not been any further information published about this. Detective Bell said that he knew from the beginning that the case would be a tough one to solve, especially since both suspects had valid reasons for their DNA to be at the crime scene. Sherry thought the opposite and had no idea that they'd still be looking for answers 21 years later. She told KTX News the following, I thought for sure it would have been solved within months, and then the first year went by, and we're still waiting for some resolution to the case, and nothing ever happens. Police stopped calling years ago with any information or anything they were looking into, so that's been frustrating. When asked about both Brian and Ralph in an interview, Sherry said that she in no way believed that Brian killed her daughter. 
She also said that detectives told her that they are 99% positive that Ralph murdered Jennifer. Though it's easy for her to get lost in frustration and grief, Sherry often thinks about the last time she saw Jennifer. After helping her move into her Abilene apartment, the two shared a dinner of spaghetti. There was no furniture in the apartment yet, Sherry remembered, so they threw a tablecloth over Jennifer's army trunk and sat on the floor and ate their dinner together. Krista, Jennifer's older half-sister, wished that Jennifer had gotten to meet her niece, Mallory. She later told the Flathead Beacon that the night she found out about Jennifer's murder was the first night that Mallory slept through the night completely. She felt that Jennifer had been her daughter's guardian angel, helping her rest soundly. Jennifer's father, Norman, took in his daughter's beloved cat, Mr. Binks, after she died. He has created a memorial Facebook page for his daughter called Remembering Jennifer Olson. On this page, he posts different articles about his daughter's murder and interviews he's done to keep Jennifer's name in the public eye. He often posts photos of Jennifer from her childhood up until her death with captions describing how proud he is of Jennifer. He told The Sun Online that the Facebook page is his way of keeping Jennifer's memory alive. Norman's been vocal about how incredibly hard life has been without her. Unfortunately, he's lost most of the hope he once had that Jennifer's murderer will be brought to justice. He told the Montana Press, I've never had any interest in life since 2002. I laid in bed for five years. The negative emotions, the grief, the rage, they are still like an electrical storm and lightning between my ears. Jennifer's ashes were spread in one of her very favorite places, Flathead Lake near her home in Montana. If you have any information about the murder of Jennifer Olson Servo, please contact the Abilene Police Department at 325-673-8331. If you wish to remain anonymous, you can call Abilene Crime Stoppers at 325-676-8477. Be sure to follow us at the Murder Diaries Pod on all socials. And until next time, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.